are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. morning and welcome to episode 51 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Claire and Andrew whose oldest daughter Alexandra died just 36 hours after she was born and Alexandra was born at full term so unlike many people I interview whose babies were perhaps premature and passed away in the NICU, um, Alexandra was a full term birth and I think they say that she had the dubious distinction of being the largest but sickest baby in the NICU and we talk about some really difficult topics in this conversation. We talk about how you determine quality of life, um, organ donation, and how they had to choose between that and having a post-mortem, which may have given them some answers around Alexandra's death. Really terrible decisions that no new parents should be faced with. And the couple's second daughter, Ophelia, then arrived around a year after Alexandra's birth. And we talk a bit about pregnancy after loss and parenting after loss. And they then experienced several years of unexplained infertility before falling pregnant again last year. And we recorded this interview a couple of months ago when Claire was heavily pregnant. Um, But Claire and Andrew asked me to hold off releasing it until after their baby was born. And I think... I think this raises kind of quite an important point for people listening, particularly people who may not have experienced a loss or may be supporting someone through a loss. Because I think there's a lot of focus placed on a rainbow pregnancy and the pregnancy sort of comes directly after a loss and supporting parents through that pregnancy, whether that's um, sort of physical support, medical support from extra scans um, or emotional support, both by um, from health professionals and friends and family. But actually, any pregnancy after a loss can be equally hard and stressful. So just because, you know, you've now got one healthy, beautiful daughter who's arrived doesn't mean that you're not going to be worried and stressed and have the same concerns in, in your next pregnancy. But I'm very delighted to say that Claire and Andrew welcomed their third daughter, Daphne, into the world last month. So congratulations to both of you. I hope you're managing the the juggle of being parents to two young children. And, you know, uh, we're still in lockdown here in the UK and, and all the different things that go along with that. It was also the first interview I've done with two participants, um, which was uh, I was a little bit nervous about, I have to admit, before going into it. But it worked really well and I really enjoyed doing it. And I think it was really great to get both partners and both parents experience of what was happening on the same podcast interview. So thank you, Claire and Andrew, for bearing with me on that and, and being game for giving it a go. Before we get into the interview, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. 
Um, firstly, my husband is uh, currently training in the depths of winter for a special charity event that's going on this summer. And there will be a little bit more information about this on the next podcast because I chat with Carl, who is organising the event. It was something that was due to go ahead last year and has, has to be postponed due to COVID. Um, and I wanted to mention it because they have just launched their Instagram account. And um, yeah, you should all go and follow them. So they are doing, there's a group of them and they are raising money for Tommy's, their baby loss charity. And they're doing a kind of alternative version of the West Highland Way in Scotland. Um, So they are going to be running 22 miles, followed by a sort of swim or kayak across Loch Lomond, then a massive long bike ride up to Fort William, and then hiking Ben Nevis, which is the highest mountain in the UK at the end of it. So it's a real gruelling endurance event, and I'm sure all the um, guys and gals taking part would really appreciate your support. So you can follow them on Instagram, at run.swim.bike.hike. I will put the link in the show notes and please do offer your support and give them a big cheer for getting out in this horrible weather to train. The other thing I wanted to mention was specific to the podcast and we are coming up to the first anniversary. I can't believe it. In fact, in terms of timing, um, I released the first episode of the podcast probably over a year ago now, but I'm going on the the 52nd episode and because I've had a few kind of fortnightly episodes um, this year, I've moved to fortnightly episodes, um, we are now, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, on episode 51. So the next episode is the big 52. Um, I can't believe it's been going a year, but I have a special episode coming up for you next week. So it'll be an extra bonus episode in between my regular interviews. And um, yeah, I'm going to be uh, interviewing a few of my early guests, seeing what's changed for them and reflecting a bit on the past year, what I've learned from doing the podcast and a few other things, really, whatever I think of. (laughs) So I hope you will join me for that uh, next week to celebrate the first anniversary of the podcast. And I do want to give a special shout out to my patrons um, for helping me to continue the podcast and for your financial support. It really means the world to me. And honestly, I think if it wasn't for you guys, um, I might have stopped doing it before Christmas. But I am trying to carry on um, because I do know how important it is to people listening. If you would like to support the show, you can do so from just a couple of pounds or dollars a month. Go to Patreon, patreon.com slash footprints on our hearts for more information. And finally, huge thank you to Izzy for editing and producing this week's podcast episode. I hope you enjoy it. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Claire and Andrew, whose oldest daughter, Alexandra, died just 36 hours after she was born. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. And thank you both so much for joining me. Hello. Hi. (laughs) This is the first time I have done a recording with three people. So I'm a little bit nervous, but hopefully, hopefully it will go okay. So let's start by going way back to the beginning. And Andrew, could you perhaps tell us when you guys first met and when you decided to start a family? So we met in 2010. Wrong. Uh, 2011. 
No, it was 2009. Uh, a lifetime ago. You're great with wedding anniversaries then. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, with, with, with lockdown, all my dates have completely gone out the window. Um, so we, we met on a scout and guide camp called Wings, which runs down in Windsor. Um, and that's a, so that's. Uh, Don't forget, we met as adults. Yeah, so we met as adults. <laughs> Yeah, this isn't a 14-year-old. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I really fancy you. Um, so this is this is uh, about 5,000 scouts and guides. And typically, you also have a team of 18 to, say, 30-year-olds who would run the activities and run the bases. And Claire and I both happened to be have volunteered to do that. So we didn't have any youngsters to look after. We were just adults um, by ourselves. And... I was living in Berkshire over in Newbury, so it was quite close to me. And Claire was living in Ashington, uh, north of Newcastle, so not very local for her at all. And we basically got chatting on, I think, the maybe the second day and kind of hit it off from there and then started a long-distance relationship. No, we hit it off because I think I told you off. <laughs> I can't believe that would ever happen to you. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's essentially what happened. She was kind of stood up to me and I went, oh, this one has feisty. Yeah, and so, so then we started a long-distance relationship, and we basically, after about nine, ten months, we decided we wanted to, to try living together. And my firm started a new role in covering the north of north of England and the whole of Ireland, and I could base myself wherever I wanted to be. Um, so we picked Leeds because it's kind of the middle of my territory, and Claire's family's uh, also from Yorkshire, so it sort of made sense. And we moved in in twenty ten. Yes. Yeah, I got one right. Um, and we and we started living together then. So we got married in 2013. Yep. Ah, nailing it now. Um, <laughs> and we both we both kind of knew we wanted children. We sort of talked about it before getting married and stuff. We wanted to have children. So we knew what we wanted to get to long term. And we decided to get a dog first, our hair baby, who's floating around somewhere. And... Then we decided we we're going to have, try and have try and have kids, uh, and we got um, pregnant really very quickly. It was about three, four months, was it, Claire? Yeah, it was about three. Yeah. yeah. So we were only trying for about three months with um, Alexandra, and we got we got pregnant very quickly, and that was in twi- so that we got pregnant either the end of twenty fourteen ish, fourteen or very beginning of twenty fifteen uh it's just it's difficult to tell from the the actual kind of dates so yeah that was uh that's how we met and that's when we decided to have kids and claire how was your experience of being pregnant with alexandra um i think we kind of took it um very cautious approach because we were very aware of um early miscarriage rates both our mums have had experience of miscarriage, um, very different experiences, but we were very kind of aware of um, the early stats. So we just kind of took each kind of milestone as it came and slowly got more and more confident through the pregnancy as it went on. Physically, towards the end, it was very, very difficult um, with reflux, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, severe pelvic pain. And it was kind of gets to the point I thought, I don't know how I'm going to give birth because I can barely move now. <laughs> so I was classed as a very low low risk pregnancy. I was under community care. And then my due dates were around right about the mid-September and they kind of just flew by. 
nothing was happening. So it got to the point where I was offered, um, I wasn't offered a sweep at 40 weeks because apparently Alexandra's head wasn't engaged. But how you can tell that by touching a bump, I've got no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was offered a sweep at 41 weeks and then booked in for induction the week after. So yeah, so the pregnancy itself was quite uneventful, very low risk. um, And then it all went Mm -hmm. catastrophically wrong right at the very end. And how did you feel about going in for an induction? I think it was just kind of, I really wanted to get the show on the road because I was just so uncomfortable. Um, I need to get this baby out. (laughs) Um, We'd done NCT classes and um, they'd kind of left me very scared of having an induction because I thought that would automatically mean C-section, which was what I was trying to avoid, which in the end is exactly what I had. (laughs) So... My dreams of, uh, you know, a water birth with, you know, low lighting and probably whale music and lots of, you know, chakra aligning and lots of very <laughs> relaxing things went completely out the window. At home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to have a home birth, <laughs> but I was wanting the pool at the hospital kind mm. of thing. My midwife um, did kind of put the pressure on for a home birth. Um, and I had to be quite firm with her in the end so that that wasn't what we wanted. That's interesting because I kind of feel like usually they push it the other way, you know, and you kind of have to fight sometimes if you want a home birth. I think she was kind of very into it. And I, mm. I just said, no, no, the thought of trying to give birth at home and, you know, the impact on the dog, I don't want to be shouting, Humphrey, come back with the placenta at any point. <laughs> you <laughs> um, imagine? <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's not the most... Um, calming dog he is now because he's getting old uh, but at the time we're just like no 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 <laughs> I just couldn't um and we 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 did say you know if anything goes wrong we want to be nearer we want to be in the hospital so the the journey between wards is much closer and it's a bit prophetic saying that in the end <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out that we we did consider a home birth because all the indicators were for low risk and nothing yeah. to be worried about so we did talk about it and seriously entertained having a home birth, which obviously with the experience we've had seems wonderfully naive. But, you know, it was it was every every indicator was that everything was doing fine. Yeah. And you never know. I mean, that, that's the fact, you know, many women have home births and successful home births every year and have no problems. You really I think and I think this is the case with a first pregnancy, like maybe with a second pregnancy, you ha- maybe have a bit more indication. But with a first pregnancy and birth, you just never know how it's going to be until you're actually in the thick of things and having to deal with it. Yeah. 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 So could you maybe talk us through your experience of Alexandra's birth then? Um, I think a lot of it, uh, it didn't happen. Um, So I was booked in for induction on the Tuesday, the 29th of September. Um, And on the Monday beforehand, I noticed that Alexandra hadn't moved as she'd normally would. So we kind of trotted off down to the LGI, forgetting to pick up a camera. I think we must have picked up my hospital bag and kind of went to... I don't think we did pick up your hospital bag. I think we just... Just grabbed the notes. We just went in the car. Yeah. And just drove to the hospital. And then, obviously, we called maternity assessment before heading in and was kind of on the assessment ward and put on a trace. And at first, everyone was like, yeah, this seems fine. But one of the, I think it was one of the midwives, um, I think her name was Alex, actually. <laughs> she kind of thought, 
this this doesn't feel right. If you're not feeling movement, but we're getting what looks like a normal heart trace, something's not clicking. So I think was it about three different times I was put on a heart trace. Um, so we, we started off a maternity assessment and they, they got the, the heart trace and they said, because we were due to come in the day after for induction, they said, well, we'll do it now because there's no point in you going home to come back kind of six hours later sort of thing um and we went downstairs to the birthing center and they put they put you they, they put you on a different heart rate monitor mm. and the trace was you could hear the trace didn't seem to be quite as strong and it was but the thing is it's it's you know if the baby's moved you don't always get the trace to work that well so they, they did this so they did this for about 20 minutes half an hour something like that and throughout this period more and more senior members of the maternity unit are coming through. So we started off with kind of like just sort of fairly stand, standard, I don't know what the term is, uh, <laughs> midwives. And then we went to senior midwives and then it was sort of senior. Um, the, uh, there was a few other ones. And there's a registrar and there's a senior registrar. And you're going through the ranks of these medics. And we went through the ranks of these medics at really a pretty rapid rate. And my experience at hospital is don't see the senior staff because that means that things are going wrong or that they want to take an interest. And really what you want to be is medically boring. You want a lot of yawning medical students. That's the that's the, the golden kind of bit to aim for. And we're getting senior registrar. And they tried to give Claire so the was it the senior registrar gave you a I think it was um it was yeah, it was uh it was one of the consultants, I think, um, Dr. Dominic, um, possibly one of the most beautiful men we've ever seen in our entire lives. Kind of, Andrew agrees. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was pretty amazing. And he kind of appeared at the end of my bed, um, brandishing what looked like a crochet hook, saying, um, I'm going to try and break your waters. And if I can't break your waters, you're going for a C-section now. Mm-hmm. And that was after he'd already done um, a sweep. And that was a lot more painful than the sweep I'd had with the midwife. Um, so like the community one, I was like, "Wow, oh, this is just no, no, not you know, more awkward than a smear test. You know, it was awkward but bearable." And then um, he had a go. I was like, "Oh, right, that's probably what it's meant to feel like." <laughs> he really went for it. And then um, you know, obviously, he had the, he tried to break walls and said, "Right, no." And um, we were kind of literally run into the operating theatre. It must have looked like ER or casualty or mm-hmm. something. And was they, run- they ran, they ran with the yeah. Trolley. Yeah. Wow. And how uh, how were you feeling at this point? Because I guess perhaps you went in. Were you anxious when you went in, or was it sort of starting to to build as you know events seemed to be escalating a bit? At what point did you did you start getting really worried? I think it was probably as I was being. Um, I think we tried to keep calm. We were concerned because obviously they don't want to tell you exactly what's happening, so you don't panic. So we, I think we were kind of aware that things were not going well. Um, but we didn't realize quite how badly they were going um, until I was basically running to the operating theater. And because I, I remember sitting on the bed and I think one of the staff said, are you okay? I said, no, I'm petrified. And, you know, huge ploppy tears fell out my eyes. And at that point I thought, this isn't good. <laughs> I, th- I think the the thing is, we, you know, when we came in, we were worried. They found the heart trace. We weren't worried. And then as you move up, like I said, as, as you got more, saw more senior, senior medical staff, and then, and then it was a, a you know, going for a C-section right now. You thought, oh, this is worrying, but I still don't think either of us thought that Alexandra wasn't going to come home. To be honest, yeah. because they'd found a heart trace, 
and we t- we didn't really know very much about why babies stop moving you know I, I, I don't i don't know i don't know anything about that it's not necessarily spoken about so i mean i remember standing in the scrubs room feeling pretty pretty shocking thinking oh god we're going to go in for a c-section because it's kind of you know serious but you still you know lots of people have had emergency c-sections and have gone home with babies and been fine so it wasn't perhaps as worrying as what ultimately happened and then yeah so then we got we got into the operating theater and they were incredibly quick you know they clearly clearly the medical staff knew that things were really serious and they didn't tell us and the thing that gave the game away a little bit about how bad things were was there was a woman i don't know what I presume she was a doctor. I don't actually. I can't really remember what whoever he was. Mm-hmm. But she stood at Claire's head to keep an eye on Claire. And she, when Alexandra got born, I they said, yeah, "This is your baby. Come and have a look." So I went over and had a look. And she came out and she looked like a doll. And I remember thinking, "Wow, I didn't think babies would look like dolls. It looks really strange." And of course, she looked like a doll because she wasn't breathing and her yeah. heart rate wasn't going. Yeah. Um. And so they said, oh, "We're just going to. She's having a little bit of difficulty getting going. We're just going to sit you down." And that really was the point that we sat down. And that's when we found out we, we'd had a girl as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we didn't know the sex. And they asked her, have you got a name? And we sort of talked about names in the car and we both went, yeah, Alexandra. I don't know how we managed to communicate that silently between us that that was what we are going to go for, but somehow we managed. Yeah, it kind of plucked out of the air, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a bit. And yeah, and then what happened was that we sat down again and you could hear behind you because a team of about eight, Maybe more medics came in and started trying to, to get Alexandra going again. And we didn't know that she wasn't wasn't going at this point. We just, you knew there's a lot of people in there trying to help her, and you're still not hearing a cry, and you're still not hearing a cry, and the clock is going and going, and you're still not hearing a cry, and you're still not hearing a cry. And you can hear them. You can hear them counting, and then you can hear them saying adrenaline, another shot, another shot. And was and no one was sort of talking to you at this point and telling you what was happening. Uh, so the, the not not really because because they were trying to get they obviously Claire was still open at this point on the mm-hmm. operating theatre. So yeah, they were they were closing me at the same yeah. time as resuscitating Alexandra mm-hmm. next to me. But I remember the, the medic who was looking after Claire. You look, I saw her. Oh, the I could see of her was her eyes because she had a mask on and a hairnet and stuff, and absolute unbridled fear in her eyes. She didn't they didn't need to tell us anything. Yeah, just looked at yeah. the eyes and thought. Oh God, this is this isn't good. Yeah, and that split. Yeah, and that split moment. I just, I just thought, I'll oh, just let her go. She's already gone. And then um, said, "We've got to go in." It's like, and the relief was just overwhelming. Yeah. So oh, they've got to go in. And then you realised, hang on. I know it takes nearly twenty minutes, roughly, to be put back together after a C-section. They were resuscitating her for their entire time, so a minimum eighteen minutes. She did not have a heartbeat or oxygen going round her for a minimum of 18 minutes outside of me. So what was going on before she was delivered? You know, we don't know for how long she was really without a proper oxygen and a heartbeat. And the, the, the neonatal consultant came through. and uh, Yeah, she was whisked off to neo, neonates and I didn't really see her. She basically just said mm-hmm. we're really concerned about your daughter's brain. And Andrew, did you go with Alexandra? Were you given that option? or Because Claire, presumably you had to go into recovery and you yeah. kind of had that recovery time in, from the C-section. Um, so you weren't able to see her straight away. Were you given that option, Andrew, or sort of how did they keep you updated? So they had to take her to go and try and stabilise her so we couldn't 
see her. Mm. This is about two in the morning. Yeah. So we basically had a room for Claire and I to recover in. So we yeah, we're in one room, and then we moved. Then we got moved onto a different ward. So we basically kind of crashed in that room because they had to go and try and stabilize Alexandra. So we weren't we weren't in there. Um, and then at about six in the morning, we went. We could go through and see her. And I, I, cause I, I don't remember kind of really seeing her for the first time because I was just so tired. Because obviously I've been over twenty four hours without any sleep at this point, and we crashed. And I was on pretty strong painkillers. Um, and there's a fo- there was a photo of me still dressed in a bed next to Alexandra on the NICU. I must have been wheeled through, and I just don't remember. Yeah, that's the that's the thing about these kind of things. You don't your brain just blocks a lot of it out. There's bits you can really pinpoint and really remember the kind of how you felt and everything else and there's other bits you just can't make sense like I can't really remember what happened on that Tuesday my parents were able to get there pretty quickly and obviously you had to call your family and they had to come down from Glasgow and Aberdeen well that was the that was like seven in the morning I would phone dad and say to him he said you know you're terribly excited because it was the first grandchild and he said oh yeah how's it going um I could hear the excitement in his voice and I just had to say you know, she was, she's really ill. I remember him uh, crying on the phone. And that was, that was the worst call I've ever made. I feel like it almost comes home to you then, maybe a bit as well, that this is really happening. And, you know, almost kind of vocalising it and and sort of saying those words out loud makes it more real somehow. Yeah. Well, I I think that was when, I mean, it was crushing when they, when the doctor said that they were concerned about her brain, like very concerned about her brain, it just took the wind out of it because there's so many things that you can treat, you know, missing missing arms and legs and all kinds of bits and pieces. But if your brain's completely like, damaged, there's no miracle drug or thing that they can go and do to fix that. And that was that was hard. And what did they... I guess what did they say in terms of her prognosis, in terms of what could be done to help her, if anything could be done to help her? So during that night of when she was delivered, I remember like various doctors coming through and saying that she needed blood transfusion, she needed other blood blood products. Oh, yeah, we had to sign um, a consent form to do with um, blood products. I'm like, yeah, just give it her, just give it her. And she had to have cryos and um, she wasn't, yeah, she wasn't clotting properly. Um, so she had to have all sorts of kind of blood product treatment. When we went through and saw her in the NICU, she was on about five different syringe pumps. I mean, I don't know yeah. what they were for, but you know, she wasn't she wasn't well. And she was the biggest one there. Yeah, by, by a long way. Because she was quite a, quite a chunky baby, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah, a whole nine pounds, 15. Oh, impressive. Yeah. Um, so we we had the uh, the accolade of having the biggest but the sickest baby mm. on the NICU. So all these tiny tiny babies that would, had a better prognosis than ours, and it just it just felt so wrong. Not that anybody should have a bad prognosis. Like, hang on, ours looks like a three month old baby. What on earth are we doing here? You know? Yeah, it's almost like you can you can understand it if a baby is born prematurely and they're very small. You can understand why they need that help and support, but. You know, she must have looked, as you say, like, you know, like a full term normal sort of healthy baby, apart from all these kind of syringes and wires going in and out of her. So she so I, we're a bit vague on the Tuesday because 
I can't really remember what happened. Mm. Um, but yeah. my parents, so my parents came down, my sister came down with her husband, um, Claire's parents came up, and we got a few photographs and stuff from that. But to be honest, you asked about the prognosis. That really happened on the Wednesday. We went to bed on the Tuesday, and they attached her to a brain activity monitor. Um, I think it's the EEG, but I might be wrong about that. And they basically said she has to rally overnight for us to, to to really have a hope and came through in the morning and said how's it been and she went she's just the same and you went yeah. right yeah because and andrew physically had to um take me away from her on the tuesday night because we kind of he he knew that we needed some kind of energy stores to make decisions the next day and i was i was fully prepared just to sit next to a bed all night yeah that must um I can't imagine how hard that must have been and I and you and as you say you know you'd had a whole night of no sleep you'd been through an emergency c-section you know all this trauma you were exhausted and you needed that rest but I I guess you're also thinking I need to be here in case in case something happens in case she needs me yeah Yeah. and I did because I didn't want to be on that ward that we got put on because we weren't in the kind of family rooms next to the NICU. I think they were being used. So I had to be on another ward surrounded by women hooked oh. up to monitors hearing heart rates. And crying. And crying. And babies crying, I should say, <laughs> not just parents. Um, so Andrew was kind of on a camp bed next to me as well because I, I think they just kind of threw the rule book out the window for us. Um, so we were kind of you know, in this on this room on this ward and I, was like, I just don't want to be there and it was just ridiculous because I, I kept having to go back to my ward to receive the painkillers um they couldn't bring them to me on the NICU um so I had to keep going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards at one point I was carrying a jug of wee because obviously my catheter had been taken out I was like I've done my wee can I go back to the NICU now <laughs> Obviously, I wasn't moving very fast. I must have looked like, you know, a very strange zombie with this, you know, jug of wee walking down the corridors. And then um, you weren't walking; you were in a wheelchair. I say, I've misremembered that. You had <laughs> massive abdominal surgery. Yeah, were, I mean, that's the thing. You weren't in any fit state to do anything, and um, we're having to no. do these, you know, have these kind of discussions um, when you're still recovering from a major piece of surgery. Mm-hmm. And when, when were you, I guess, when were you given that sort of choice or decision to make in terms of? Yeah, it was Wednesday morning. We chatted to the, uh, it was one of the consultants and he just said that. Was it Dr. Kevin? He looked about 12, remember? He, looked... he did. Um, <laughs> he basically said that we know from the prognosis of children like Alexandra that it's highly unlikely that they'll make it to their, um, make it to school age. Um, they tend to, you know, so there's, it's it's likely that she won't be able to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, anything. To me, I kind of, it kind of, you can kind of understand. Oh, somebody might be born not able to see, okay, um, but they might not be able to, to hear as well. All right, okay, but then you start getting to smell and taste and touch, and you're thinking, well, what 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 qualifies as life if you have no no awareness of anything external? then, you know, what kind of life is that? I mean, what, what, if she's in horrendous pain, she has absolutely no way of telling us. And we'd be none the wiser. You know, she could go, she could go insane because she's got no stimulus at all, and we wouldn't know. And it's when you hear that kind of black and whiteness, it just sort of focuses your, your brain. So at that point, up until that point, they've been working on a kind of intervention 
uh, mechanism. So if she started deteriorating, they would go and try and help her and stuff. And they said, maybe we should move to a more supportive. So we said, yeah, we should move to supportive because we, I just don't, we didn't think, you know, even if they fixed all their organs and everything else, they can't fix broken brains. You can't teach, you can't make the synapses and the connections you need to be able to speak and read and write and do anything. And is that in terms of what that that sort of I guess supportive definition is that so they for example if she crashed they wouldn't resuscitate her and they they just sort of I guess let nature take its course a little bit yes they said um, basically if um, you know if she goes downhill we won't stop her mm. um, if she if she decides to go then we'll let her yeah and were you able to hold her at all Claire. Um, no, not until um, things were starting to be taken out of her. So I wasn't able to hold her until she was dying, basically. No, we had all the family. Everybody got to hold her. Yeah, but um, that was everything taken away. And then um, she was on a ventilator on a cushion. Yeah. So I wasn't really able to physically hold her properly as my daughter yeah. until, until she was passing away. But when the, we chatted to the consultant and said that we wanted her to be considered for organ donation as well. I, I was gonna kind of come on to that. So you and you did decide to donate her heart valve. So was that something which you requested then, or was some was it something the doctors talked to you about after her death? And did it affect? Because um, I know, I know nothing about like I guess how organ donation happens. Did it affect how much time you were able to spend with her, or whether there could be any investigations such as a post mortem and stuff afterwards? Uh, we we asked about it um and said is it um an option and i think i think the doctors looked pretty stunned <laughs> that we said oh oh is is this an option can we do this um so uh, someone from uh, the donation team came across and kind of looked at the case and um in order i think her organs a lot of them were just too damaged um, so literally the only thing that um, they would be able to take was uh, heart, heart valves for transplant and heart tissue for research. It did. Well, the other thing I was going to say is it precluded uh, an autopsy. So we couldn't have an autopsy and donate organs. And it was quite important for us that her that she she mattered to us um, and that she should be able to do something with her life, even if it is incredibly short. So, yeah, we got, you know, the worst news ever, but other people will have got brilliant news when they got heart valves. So that was that was our viewpoint. Um, and, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't even a complicated decision. It, it wasn't something we sat there and agonized about. It was, you know, if you have it, we felt, well, we felt, I think, that you have an autopsy and they're going to say, oh, well, this happened. Well, without with all due respect, so what? My daughter's still dead. I still I don't get to go back and reset the clock and then go and make that all better. You know, I still I still don't go home with her. So at least this way something some good can come of this. I think it's amazing that that thought even I don't think that thought would have even crossed my mind, to be honest. <laughs> um but it's it is really nice that she has gone on to make some other baby's life, I guess, better and to perhaps save another life, you know, that might otherwise have been yeah. lost. Yeah. Mm. So I'd like to sort of move on a bit to talk about grief. And Claire, how were those first few months for you, particularly once Andrew went back to work and you sort of had the funeral out the way and, and all those kind of, I guess, initial 
things during those first few weeks which make that a blur once things kind of settle down um how was your experience of grief I think it was um shell shock really um just stunned that this had happened to us because you know it, it happens to other people when babies die they're they're poorly and there's a reason and um once our investigation paperwork came out there wasn't a definitive reason it was the lightest of unknown etymology of the placenta. We don't know why the placenta stopped working. Essentially, Alexandra outgrew it, and that was it. Sorry, if your daughter was, you know, she was born at 38 to 40 weeks, odds on she'd be fine. Uh, and I think, was she 42 weeks, I think, when she was born? Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. she was 42. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of, oh, now what? It's, it's, it's a complete kind of blur. I mean, um, in hindsight, um, well, I think we, Andrew kind of ran away back to work to kind of be distracted. Um, and I think at the time you felt I should be in a routine. And I went back to work in the new year because I said, there's no way I'm going back to work before Christmas, surrounded by a load of women in the office, excited about Christmas with their families. Mm. No, thank you. Um so I went back in the new year and in hindsight, that was the, the wrong decision because mm-hmm. I went back to work, I went back to my volunteering and I should have done neither or just one. There was no way I should have gone back to everything at the same time. It was way too much. And I think, mm-hmm. Andrew, you felt the same as well, didn't you? The, the, there's two sort of resigning memories for me, which is that we came back. So we went home on the Thursday, I think, wasn't it? Thursday morning. Thursday morning. Yeah. So, like, so bear in mind that this whole episode, like, you know, our entire child's life, started on the monday and finished on the thursday you know not even a week well, she, she died on died on the wednesday night we went home so we went home and home is exactly the same except claire wasn't pregnant and that was it and it, you kind of i mean i remember you know, lying there thinking did it even happen have i imagined this is this some sort of dreadful nightmare but claire's right i mean i went back to work quite quickly i have no idea what happened in those weeks i can't remember it's just cannot, cannot for love nor money remember what happened. There's the only things I can really uh, definitely pinpoint was I've woken up a couple of times in the night and once uh, vividly remembering holding Alexandra's hand, um, really uh, remembering holding it, and it was so delicate and so small. And I woke myself up and I was holding my own finger and I was trying to, you know, synthesize it, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. and then uh, people talk about heartache and actually it's often said, oh, it, you know, a bad breakup or whatever. But I, I remember waking up and my heart actually hurting the heart muscle, actually aching after this. And he had thoughts. He thought, yeah. well, if I have a heart attack now, well, well. Yeah. If I don't wake up, don't matter. Don't matter. <laughs> Not that we ever, not that we ever really felt suicidal. It was kind of a, if I don't wake up, I'm not going to be too upset. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I understand. It's like, it's like you're not taking, you know, you're not suicidal, and you're not like, oh, I want to take my life, but it's almost like, but life doesn't have any joy or meaning or anything at the moment. So if I stop living, what what does it matter, and what's the difference? The thing that grounded us probably the best was the dog, because he was exactly the same. So we had to we had to get up, we had to feed him, we had to take him out, and it meant that we had to do something. Um, I think it would have been very, very hard if we hadn't had him. 
Um, so we owe him a debt of gratitude. Yes, basically hum- Humphrey and the counsellor from Martin mm. House Children's Hospice basically saved saved us and saved the marriage and the relationship and the family, really, didn't they? And did you have counselling together or separately? Both. Um, it was a community um, service that Martin House had just launched at the time. And it was just an off-the-cuff comment by someone in hospital. So we self-referred before we even left the hospital. And the counsellor um, came to us at home so we didn't have to go anywhere. And we had most of the sessions together. Then I think we had a couple separate. And that was over the following year. Um, we were able to have about 10 sessions, which kind of overlapped onto my subsequent pregnancy the the year after she kind of supported us through that as well so let's come on to talk about that then because your second daughter arrived I think was it the year after Alexandra was born yeah just over yeah could you talk a bit about your thoughts around trying for another baby and sort of how you uh, reached a decision on that I don't remember as having kind of any real in-depth um discussions about you know, what this would mean. It was kind of, well, if we want a family, we're just going to have to, you know, more babies and we're just going to have to get on with it. I can't really remember what advice I was given about waiting because obviously I just had a C-section. I think that advice has changed. I've met a lot of people in the subsequent five years have been advised to wait maybe four, five, six months after a C-section. But I was pregnant very quickly. The advice is you wait 12 weeks if you um, want to try and get pregnant again. Um, but if you want to have a vaginal birth, you need to wait, I think, 12 months before trying again to let it heal. And we were like, we are not waiting 12 months. We want a baby. <laughs> no, too long. <laughs> we want our baby home. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so um, I had a different um, midwife um, for my community care and I was um, under a consultant at the LGI who was just magically appeared on the NICU and I just thought it was yet another doctor for Alexandra and said, no, I'm the doctor for you. And he kind of took me under his wing as a professional curiosity because it was so out of the blue what happened to Alexandra. So he kind of took me under his wing. Um so I had consultant-led care throughout, and I felt much more confident in the um, care I was getting from my community midwife because our investigation revealed revealed a lot of kind of really basic admin mistakes. Um, no, it wasn't like she'd missed a red flag. It just seemed like a lot of little mistakes that were slowly building up. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, her mistakes didn't cause Alexandra to be so poorly, but it kind of just it does leave you with a what if. Mm-hmm. what 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 if had she sent me for that extra scan that she was meant to do or what if um you know if, she, if she's been missing all these other little paperwork things what else has she missed um mm-hmm. I mean it wasn't she you know she was she didn't set out to um create this perfect storm by any stretch that's not um what happened it was just you have that doubt afterwards and the community um midwife that I had with Ophelia I actually love her to bits because she was absolutely amazing. She was she was just so good. Um, she let me listen to the heartbeat every pretty much every single appointment. I had my scans every three weeks, midwife appointment in between those scans. So I was constantly seeing someone roughly every ten days, um, mm. which kind of kept it on a kept my head on an even keel for the most part. But it was extremely difficult, and. 
it's just that constant worry throughout. So why am I doing this again? There's no guarantee my baby is going to come home. That, that was the hardest thing is that your normal is a baby who dies. So you think mm-hmm. when you go into this pregnancy, you think, oh, well, we know how to organize a funeral and how to organize that and what you have to do about registering a birth and a death and, and all this kind of stuff. So people said, you know, oh, and when baby comes home and you're going, are you insane? Baby's not going to come home. Yeah, it's always if. And it's it was weird because you you know what because you've been through this terrible thing. Your normal is so different to everybody else's. I mean, one of the one of the challenges during certainly during Ophelia's pregnancy was people were getting pregnant and having babies and stuff, and it and it also takes a lot of the joy out of it because you know that not every single one comes home. And when we went in for the investigation, um, this is in about March when, when Sir Claire is a couple of months pregnant, in your head you think, well, I should be going in as the last baby that died. That should be my title. And then they'll re- read about it in medical history books and go, oh, remember when this used to happen? And that's not the case. You go there and you know it might have happened today. It probably, you know, in the UK, it did happen today. It may have happened in Leeds today and it's and it's happening when we're making this podcast and that frankly sucks that really really sucks it just seems like we have we put resources onto some things but when it comes to little people we just don't seem to be able to find it and it's it strikes me as one of those like horrible ironies that when you're pregnant after you've lost you get everything, you know, you get, you get, you get the nice midwives, the nice midwives. I mean, they're all nice, I'm sure, but you know, you, you get the ones who, who know how to look after you, like emotionally, um, you know, you don't get missed appointments or messed around with that. You know, you get the consultant they care, you get the extra scans, you, you kind of get everything. And it's like, but what if I'd had that, the yeah, yeah. you know, if I'd had that the first time, maybe I would not even be in this situation right now. You know, maybe this pregnancy, which I'm in now, is the, the healthy one and it doesn't need any of that stuff. But actually, where was that when I when I really needed it? Yeah, it, it kind of kind of blew my mind that um, there isn't a scan on a low risk after 20 weeks. It's like, yeah. surely everyone should have a minimum three, just one near the end. And I, I remember thinking that, when I was when I was pregnant with Sky after I had my twenty week scan, I was like, "That's the last time we're going to see her before, you know, before she's born." How can that? How can that be? Yeah, especially when you've got half the pregnancy still to go. Well, consider, consider that they've managed to turn around a coronavirus vaccine in ten months as opposed to ten years. It just shows. It just shows that it is will. It's not anything else. We could do all this stuff. We could. We have to prioritize different things, but we could do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole because I'm conscious of time. <laughs> I'm trying not to be too political, but I'm sure there are many, many people, in fact, probably everyone listening to this who, who agrees with you on that. So, and how can I ask how, I guess, how did you feel when she arrived and you had, you know, you had this living baby and those kind of early sort of weeks of parenthood which are so crazy and you know you've you've still so kind of early really in your grief around Alexandra I think that's what was uh, difficult um for a lot of other people kind of on the periphery like you know people who were close kind of got it um 
but once you start getting on the outer layers, I think people kind of thought, what do you mean you're still upset? Um, you've, you've got your baby. I don't really understand. So my baby is another girl. She looks almost exactly like Alexandra. In my head, it's the wrong baby. I remember being on the ward um, and she was crying and I was just curled up in a ball. It's like, I don't want to deal with her. It's the wrong baby. I can't, I don't want to touch her. I don't want to pick her up. And I'd go from holding her, not wanting to put her down because the last baby I put down was um, Alexandra in her cot on the NICU and had to walk away without her Mm. to not being able to look at her once she was in the cot because she looked like Alexandra. And it was just you going round and round in circles thinking, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. Why am I doing this? <laughs> um, and she wasn't latching and she got jaundice. You know, I was like the Trevi fountain and this baby still wasn't latching. <laughs> um, we got home and got um, scared by a rather gruff midwife who basically told us we weren't feeding the baby enough and she was, you know, going, she was always going to die. I was like, oh, my God. Don't tell me that. Do you not know what has actually happened to us? I was like, Angie's got to hide like a rhino. And even he was just like, God, she was awful. She, she went further than that. She more or less said, you're starving your child. And you might as well have gone full out and said it because she was she was terrible. But there's a couple, there's a couple of things we did, I think, which helped, which is that, like, so Claire, Claire breastfed uh, Ophelia for a whole year, um, one of the 2%. Um, and so we basically, I basically said to Claire, I said, look, Give yourself, uh, I think I said four, four weeks, yeah. didn't I? Um, give yourself four weeks. If you haven't cracked it in four weeks, give up. You've tried. It didn't work. You can't say any fairer than that. Um, and then you got it in two. Um, but I think taking the pressure off you helped. Yeah. That one of the hardest things is, as a feeling gets older, you, you're Alexandra's kind of set in aspect. You know, she doesn't change. She doesn't age. She's mm-hmm. always a baby. And she's always um, the same size and the same kind of dimensions and everything else. Um, or as Ophelia obviously gets bigger. And the hard bit is as you get to know Ophelia and you, she says things, she does stuff and she makes you laugh and she makes you cry and everything else. You find this weird kind of paradox where you think, I am incredibly grateful that I've got Ophelia, but I, and I, wouldn't, but I wouldn't necessarily change what happened. Because if I had changed it, Odds on Ophelia wouldn't exist. Yeah. So you have this this terrible pain and yearning for your child who's not there, but at the same time, you wouldn't necessarily change that. And that's yeah, because even, even though weird. the timelines we could have had both, it's very unlikely that we would have had babies back to back had Alexandra lived. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's quite difficult to take, and it's like it's like that bit in Back to the Future when we're on an alternative timeline. Um, we're living a different timeline to everybody else and what we should have been doing with Alexandra like she should have started school this year but we have that next year with um Ophelia so it's just kind of you 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 miss out with one hand and gain with the next and it's that constant trying to keep that balance um kind of between the two mm-hmm. you just have to remind yourself that's what you know parents of more than one kid are like they have to balance the between the two it's just that our other kid isn't here and that's a kind of a really strange concept I think there's just so much about this whole thing that just messes with your head and it's and you have to kind of try and deal with that while at the same time you know parenting a a young child and and doing all the kind of normal parent stuff and and going through all those 
you know, challenges with breastfeeding and sleeping and feeding, you know, all, all those things which, which come along with a young baby. And so you managed to get pregnant very quickly with both Alexandra and Ophelia. But I think you then decided that you wanted to try for another child and had some struggles in terms of getting pregnant again. Could you maybe talk a bit about that? And I guess how that maybe impacted your grief or your feelings around perhaps the family you should have had by now, but but don't. Yeah, I mean, um, I remember the other day, it's been six years since we embarked on trying for babies. That really that really blew my mind, that didn't. That's a long, long time. So um, I think we, we basically kind of started trying about June-ish to, uh, 2018 and um, kind of assumed that rather naively because, mm-hmm. you know, it happened really quickly twice before. Oh, yeah, maximum it'll take us a year. But it was like an arid desert. Like the, nothing was happening. Absolutely nothing. And um, we moved house. Then we just kind of it was over Christmas 2018. Um, we decided to to move across Leeds to a different area because we just felt that we needed a fresh start and things had calmed down because you know we'd had a lot of bereavement in a very short space of time. Um, in the year that we lost Alexandra. And my grandma died in the August, then we lost Alexandra, then my granddad died um, a month or so afterwards. So it had a really intense period of bereavement. And then my other grandma uh, died. So I'm going to get this wrong. Um, it was in the new year and it must have been 2018. So I was, I was back at work. Um, and yeah, it's the, things had kind of settled down. It's like, right. Let, let's go now. Um, I was kind of holding Andrew off, um, thinking, I don't want to buy a bigger house and then not be able to fill the rooms with babies. <laughs> Another prophetic comment. And um, so once we had moved and I'd registered with a new doctor, this is, um, we're about a year plus in. I thought, something's probably not clicking right. So I rang up and I, I felt pretty fobbed off, to be honest. Oh, well, you're still young and la di da and la di da. So yeah, but I've had, you know, I've had two C-sections. If there's something not right, I want to know sooner rather than later so I can actually do something about it. So I had to kind of um, push for some tests and one of the tests came back that um, one of the hormones wasn't quite right. So either it was like cause some months no egg, some months bit of a crappy egg. I was like, oh, right, how, 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 how has that come out of nowhere? <laughs> maybe those maybe those girls are the only ones I'm going to get. Maybe Ophelia is the only child that will come home. And um, as an only child myself, I was like, okay, if that's our lot, that's our lot, but let's let's um, continue investigating what's happening. And Andrew had um, some tests as well. He had his date with a cup eventually. And we got referred to the um, fertility clinic at the Seacroft Hospital, had more appointments with the consultant, more blood tests, and it was wildly different um, from the conversation I'd had with the GP about my test results. The GP was, I felt, was probably um, quite alarmist, whereas the consultant was like, oh, this is fine. I was like, so where on the spectrum am I? <laughs> because you've got one doctor going, oh, this isn't good, and the other doctor going, yeah, it's fine. Because obviously he's seen a lot worse <laughs> in terms of fertility. Um, so it's kind of, off you go, keep trying. Um, then we had another uh, consultant appointment. Yeah, um, we still don't know what's going on. 
Um, so I had more investigations. So I had an internal scan just to see what was happening. Um, and basically, um, at one of the follow-up consultation appointments, we were basically, basically told it was unexplained secondary subfertility, i.e. we've got no idea. Everything, everything's there that should be. Um, there's no reason why you choose would suddenly become blocked. You've already had two babies. We clearly know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I've not knowingly had a, an early loss or a miscarriage mm -hmm. that, I, you know, that I know of. Um, I've brought two babies to term what the chuff is going on. And the official diagnosis was, mm -hmm. we've got no idea. Um, I wasn't offered any kind of fertility drugs or anything like that. It was, um, off you go. If you're not pregnant by September 2020, let's look at the IVF. Oh, and by the way, it will cost six grand yeah. per go. You don't qualify for any. Because it's been going on for such a long time. Um, and this is 20, so this, it's worth saying it was, it was 22 months of grinding out a result, for want of a better expression. Um, but we didn't have like five months off in the middle mm -hmm. of it. It was every month. Let's go, go again. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's try and get this. Yeah, and it was you know it, it certainly took the fun. It's a bit of the romance aspect, it, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it's sort of like oh, is it really that time? Oh god. Um, and then we basically just gave up. Like we just went, well, it's probably not going to happen. And then boom, mm. <laughs> Claire got pregnant. Locked out, lockdown, baby. <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah. And it was, it just really, we really had, and it's always terrible, a cliche, we just say, when you relax, then it'll happen. But we've basically just given up mm. and we just kind of relaxed and went, well, it's not going to happen. I hated it. I hated it when you said that because I was like, I think I was a bit more stressed after we lost Alexandra and boof, I was pregnant, you know, three months later. Yeah, you just had a baby, your fertility's higher. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Gentle congratulations to both of you on that. And I'm sure it is still an incredibly stressful experience, which hasn't been made any easier by, you know, everything that 2020 and the world has thrown at us. But I really do hope that you get to bring another little brother or sister home for Alexandra and Ophelia. Now, we are kind of running out of time, but before we finish, I just want to ask you about how you've chosen to remember Alexandra, both as a family and also how and why you've, you know, shared her story with the world. Um, I think we, we basically include um, Alexandra everywhere because we've got photos and, you know, handprints and Ophelia is aware of Alexandra. Um, to her, all babies are Alexandra. Yeah, every single one is called Alexandra. In, in, including the one in Mummy's Tummy. I was like, no, we're not. We're not going to copy the Victorians. We're not going to reuse names. Um, well, we did. We did ask her what should we call her, and she said Alexandra. And then we said, what about a different name? And she came up with Burger. <laughs> we thought the baby should be called yeah. Burger. So, don't ask a four-year-old their opinion. I think it's the moral of the story. We have. I have, a, we have pictures of her. So I have a picture of Alexandra on my desk at work, um, largely to annoy people about the clear desk policy. So I look at her and I look at both my girls, and I think, yeah, go on. You tell me to get rid of that picture. I'll, let's just see how you react. Yeah, come on, bring it on. Bring it on. I'm up for it. Um, weirdly, nobody has ever asked me to remove it. So that's, mm. that's that, eh? <laughs> Funny. Um, but we, I think there's always, a, there's always a, we didn't do things like, so we didn't have a gravestone. 
um, we didn't want to have a kind of millstone to. Sorry, bad, bad expression. I know some people really like them, and that's their thing. But we didn't want to have something that we felt we had to go to and visit and see. And then if it got, everybody got vandalized or it got damaged, it would be. Or if we moved out of area, we'd be leaving yeah. her behind, and um, we, we just didn't want that situation, which is why we chose uh, cremation. Um, I've got um, an, uh, a little ring made out of a, a rashes and um, finally found an urn that was uh, nice this year. <laughs> it took me five years of searching to find something that um, I thought was worthy of her rather than the, uh, the um, it looks like a shaken vac tube that you get from the crematorium. Yeah. It's just awful. Which also doesn't, a lot of the urns can look a bit Victorian, you know, and, and it's kind of, yeah, it's like, not really, it's not our thing for a child. Awesome. You know, this is a baby it's not yeah a, it's not your auntie nan we didn't yeah. do things like plant trees or anything either again it's the sort of pressure of what if the tree dies well the thing is it's just a tree we've got some named roses um we've managed we have actually managed to to move house with i think and they've, and they've survived but that, that's all i do <laughs> it's not me I'm, i don't do the gardening um but um, we've done a lot of kind of fundraising. Um, we it was about ten grand with the gift aid all in um, for the NICU, and then we've done kind of smaller things each year. So we've raised a little bit for you know Sands and Tommy's and mm-hmm. um, Beyond B charity. I've done um, parents speaking through Sands and Beyond B, which I kind of feel it's quite cathartic. So I get to help. Um, you know, other midwives and bereavement training. And I get to share Alexandra's story because if we don't tell it, she's just going to be forgotten about. And she, I think it was, was it the author of uh, The Fault in Our Stars that said, you know, even short lives are worthwhile. And it's the worth, it's her worth that I'm sharing. And the f- fact that her life was so short, but it was worthwhile. Yeah, And I think that is a perfect point at which to kind of wrap up. Thank you both so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing Alexandra's story. Would you like to tell people where they can find out more about Alexandra and perhaps connect with you online? Uh, well, that'll be me because Andrew doesn't do social yeah. media. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on Instagram, it's uh, after Alexandra 36 um, that's probably the the main place uh, to find me. That's my uh, public page. And then there is a link to um, the blog at, um, in my profile in the bio on that. Um, but I tend to put more on Instagram than than on the blog. Um, it, 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 I can go a long time before I um, publish things. Mm. Um, so my blog entries do tend to be a bit essay-like. Um, but, yeah, Instagram is probably the best place. Fantastic. Thank you both so much again. No worries. Thank thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.